to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. And as always, I'm here with my great co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. I like that edition of great. You know, I'm really feeling it today. Yeah. And also Alex Lawson. I mean, I wouldn't. You're really overselling. You're already overselling. <laughs> yeah. What, what, I would say I'm, here. I would say I'm good to very good. I wouldn't say that I'm a great co-host. Strong. Just yeah. so modest. My, my modest co-host. <laughs> Uh, before yeah. we get into the show, we do have to do a quick update on a story we've talked about a bunch, the uh, the travails of, of Representative Chris Collins. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a, uh, a boom time for political corruption stories, and yeah. this one is a little more concrete than sure. the one taking shape against uh, in, in the White House. So he was a Republican from, the, from the, uh, Western New York, yeah. and he was one of, notably was one of the very first people to support uh, President Trump. And um, he pled guilty this week to insider trading um, and quickly resigned from Congress. He was one of two people. We've also talked about Duncan Hunter sure. yeah, as the other big uh, sitting congressman who's facing criminal charges. Um, Collins was an interesting story because some of the alleged insider trading he was doing on the phone on the lawn of the White House. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it the Easter egg roll? I, I think, think so. Wasn't yeah. it? One, one of some, those events. Something like that. Yeah, yeah he got yeah, like yeah. an email from he. Invested in this company, uh, innate, and he got this. He got like an email that I guess was private. The pharmaceutical was a, company, yeah, or something like and that. Um, it said that their one of their big drugs had failed some critical test, some regulatory test, and he immediately called his son, who also had a oh, bunch of right. shares, and told him to sell them to avoid losing money. That, that'll which, do it. I don't know if you guys knew this. That's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and now he knows it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's nice that we started with something very topical uh, with, with that update for everybody. We're also going to have another late-breaking thing on the show later on. We're going to talk to Chris Villani, who was covering Harvard's trial about using race in, as part of their admissions process. Mm-hmm. So he's going to update us on what happened at the, with all of that. The next big affirmative action case. Yeah. Um, but so before we get into all that, we have a, uh, the, uh, the latest ruling in the long, long, very long battle over net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately it was a big win for the Trump administration, which wants to roll these, these rules back. But, um, it came with sort of a big caveat that left a lot open. That's going to be interesting to see what happens in the, in the months ahead. So I love talking about net neutrality, but I do realize that there are some people out there that maybe aren't following all the things going on with the internet and tech and maybe don't even really know what net neutrality is. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. I like, I, I, I urged you guys in the notes to uh, I know. Call, I was, me, call me a coward and urge me to uh, explain what net neutrality yes. is. <laughs> yes, to, to peek behind the curtain, Bill's note in the in the show document is explain net neutrality in 30 seconds, you coward, in capital letters. That's what we're supposed to say to him. So anyway. So go for it. So anyway, net neutrality is uh, it's it's the concept that ISPs, like internet service providers, Comcast, AT&T, whatever, um, that they should treat all internet traffic equally. That doesn't mean... I think there's sometimes a misconception when people don't know that much about net neutrality that they think, you know, that means in terms of the front end, in terms of how you guys get your broadband from them. Yeah. Right. Um, like they can charge anyone who's bought broadband service knows that they can charge you for different speeds and, and you know. They can when, and they do. Yes. yes. Um, but the, what it does mean is that Comcast can't. Uh, they can't charge Netflix for better access to you, to mm-hmm. the subscriber. They can't ask for money to have better access to these pipes. That's the idea of net neutrality is that they should not be able to do that. The idea being that it, you know, then in in 
over time, you would only have the Netflix of the world that could afford to pay to access the pipes and all the other smaller companies have, to be forced out. And Yeah, and you'd have lots of problems, too, with things like um, big ISP providers making sweetheart deals with, with other companies within their family of companies. Totally. So. And, and, and another offshoot here is, and it's more egregious behavior than just sort of this business model of asking for money to do it, but... Net neutrality also is supposed to cover the idea that ISPs can't outright block content, mm-hmm. they can't censor, sure. they can't remove stuff. So um, it's this general idea of, of that, that the ISPs should be sort of a dumb pipe, that they should be this thing where the, the information goes through, but they're not picking and choosing you know, how it goes through. Yeah. Um, so what is the sort of current status of U.S. net neutrality laws? Do we, we have them? Do we support them? Are we against them? <laughs> What's it all about? We've been trying. Um, <laughs> yeah. I remember in college, which was you know the late 2000s, I was writing about, I wrote some article, and I remember it now, like writing about net neutrality. I was like, this is right. We're going to have this pretty soon. I um, always it, I, 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 it always calls to mind the Dan Stevens, right? The Senate with the... Uh, the series oh, of yeah, tubes, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was thinking about when you talk about the internet is a is a big dumb pipe. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. sorry. Okay, so um, yeah, net neutrality. So uh, we the, the we've been trying for a long time to get these rules in place. The the U.S. government has in various ways. Um, the FCC tried in 2010. It was struck down in the courts. It was challenged by ISPs. It was struck down. The court said that they didn't have the authority under the sort of way that they were doing it. They didn't have the legal authority to regulate the internet this yeah. way. So they double down in 2015. They use this even stronger authority. They say, here's, we're going to really break out our big legal guns and we're going to regulate the internet like it's a utility. We're going to use the, the sort of the ability the same way. I mean, not the exact same way, but it's, you hear that utility style regulation is it just to say that it's, you know, it's a, it's a stronger regulation. It's to say that you yeah. are a very important part of it's our the same ecosystem. Legal basis. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so those rules were ultimately upheld in court. They survived a similar challenge that had struck down the earlier ones. But then arrives the Trump administration in 2017 and um, amid a, a much broader deregulatory push by yeah. the administration, um, the net neutrality rules were, uh, were, were repealed in 2017. So how did they justify that repeal? So the FCC said, you know, we we are allowed to have a change in policy and that we are entitled to withdraw these rules the same way that 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 we put them in. Mm-hmm. That immediately was subject to legal challenges. Sure. Um, a number of Internet companies led by Mozilla, the company that makes uh, Firefox, the yeah. Internet browser, um, they filed a lawsuit saying that the agency had, you know, they hadn't acted the way that an, an administrative agency is supposed to. It's classic administrative law challenge that that it was arbitrary and capricious. That mm-hmm. they hadn't, um, you know, they hadn't really explained why they were doing it this way. Yeah. And it's too um, abrupt. It's unpredictable and all of that. Right. And um, and then uh, sort of a side offshoot here. The a bunch of states also got involved in these legal challenges, um, challenging an aspect of the FCC's uh, rollback that said. Not only are we rolling back our rules, but here we are blanket preempting any state that wants to do this. You're not yeah. allowed to. You don't have the authority. We are stopping you from doing that. You're not allowed to pass a state level rule. And um, that was challenged. California ha- had already passed its own rule, and so that was challenged by a, a number of states. So where did the um, we got we got a decision this week? Where do we where do we come down on that? And what's how does that leave us? Yeah, I mean on the. Big, as I mentioned before, on the big question of these rules themselves, these federal net neutrality rules, the court sided with the Trump administration. They said, you have the authority to pull this stuff back. You'd explained it well enough. You you didn't run afoul of the, those sort of uh, 
guardrails that, that we put on the way that administrative agencies act. The quote, regulation of broadband internet has been subject to protracted litigation with broadband providers subjected to and then released from common carrier regulation over the previous decade. We declined to yet again flick the on-off switch. So it's, you know, in that regard, the 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 rollback is complete now of yeah. these of these rules. But notably, as I said at the outset, the court also struck down that provision that 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 blanket ban on states doing this, which opens up a whole nother can of worms. They said that the FCC just didn't have the the authority to go out and sort of ahead of time tell a bunch of states that this thing might conflict with a thing that we want to do. It, mm-hmm. it, it's you you know you have to have an authority to go out and it's it's very in the weeds constitutional law federalism, yeah. but uh, you need to have an authority th- that you are citing to go out and then stop a state from doing Definitely. it. So the quote. The commission ignored binding precedent by failing to ground its sweeping preemption directive, which goes far beyond confliction preemption, in a lawful source of statutory authority. That failure is fatal. So where, yeah, but so, so what's the what's the landscape look like here? For the, you know, Sounds the, like a bunch of lawsuits is what the landscape's going to have. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what that is really a call to. I mean, so the, it's it. We will see many more legal challenges. This is not the end of, of this, but it will shift to presumably to the state level where, yeah. um, as I mentioned, California has already passed this law. Washington, Oregon have already passed um, versions of net neutrality laws. They mostly sort of mimic the, the, the Obama era rules that, that, that were at issue here. Mm-hmm. Um, and dozens of other states are currently considering their own state level uh, attempts to tell ISPs what they can and can't do with content. Um, now, to be clear, the, the FCC's, they, they this ruling didn't say that they can't preempt things that states do. What they said is you can't do it on a nationwide basis uh, based on this hypothetical idea that states might do something. That, that right. Yeah, yeah. So wh- what that means is that we're going to see states like California and Washington and Oregon roll these things out, and then they're going to be individually challenged by the FCC mm-hmm. in, in this sort of protracted fight. So um, – and I – mean, Kelsey Griffiths, our, our te- telecom reporter down in D.C., had a really great story. Everyone should go read it. But um, uh, she had one interesting anecdote, one quote, where the where one of her experts told her that uh, that that even that might face an uphill – these individual case-by-case things might face an uphill climb because if you think about it, what the, what the FCC was doing was they were rolling back their own authority to police right. broadband. They were saying, we don't have the authority to do this. We're pulling back on that. So now they're trying to say we have enough authority to preempt states from doing it, but yes. we don't have enough to do it ourselves. It raises interesting questions of these sort of thorny preemption questions that'll, um, I'm sure, will play out over the next two or three years. Curious indeed. Um, we will move uh, to uh, more active state litigation, and actually in California, as you mentioned on the uh, net neutrality tip. Uh, but this has to do uh, with the long uh, legal saga over the NCAA's uh amateurism rules um, for, you know, uh, college college athletes. Um, this week, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that will allow college athletes um, in his state, in California, to earn money for endorsement deals uh, on their uh, image and likeness. Um, and the, the, the law was basically signed as a sort of direct shot at the entire NCAA amateur model um, with, with regard to uh, college sports, um, and it figures to... 
um, prompt, uh, uh, you know, pump up the volume on that discussion even further than it already is. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this stuff for years in the courts and, uh, yeah. you know, and in the court of public opinion, this this idea that, you know, I mean, I, I forget what the deal was that the CBS signed with the NCAA for March Madness, but it was like $11 billion. Or yeah. Like, it's a huge profit-making industry, so there's been criticism for a long time that some of the players should perhaps get a cut, and this seems like it was really California trying to, like, you know, stir the pot and move the move the conversation. I forward. really love that we're talking about a sports related story that I I understand this completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's employment stuff in here. There's antitrust stuff in here. Um, but your point about the about the litigation is interesting because there were court cases that chipped away at this idea yeah. over years. Um, most no, most notably the O'Bannon case, which went to the Ninth Circuit. And it was like. Both sides were able to claim victory because the the court said like the the NCA amateurism rules are probably an antitrust restriction, but then they put a they put a pretty hard cap on the kind of remedy you can do, where they were tethering the the compensation that college athletes can receive to education related expenses. It got very complicated. It was stopped short of just fair compensation for the revenue right. you're generating for the school, um, in the eyes of the athletes, that is. And so what this is, like I say, California kind of did this bill. I was talking to Zach Zagger, our uh, sports law reporter before. I mean, this is basically like an end around to these like half measures in the courts. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of explain it more clearly, um, the NCAA has bylaws on the books that very clearly ban athletes in school um, from using their name, image, or likeness to, and this is a quote from the bylaws, advertise, recommend, or promote directly the sale or use of a commercial product or service of any kind. So that's pretty clear. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's just like you you can't you can't market yourself. You can't, I mean, the, the, the big thing that always comes up is like, oh, I can't even sign an autograph if somebody wants to pay me like $10 right. for my yeah, autograph. That's a violation. Merchant right? or um, uh, like collector's items. Yeah, and, yeah. Th- things like that. Um, so that has been sort of a bedrock rule for a long time. Um, and the law that Newsom signed on Monday sort of goes right up against that and says that, you know, athletes can pursue endorsements and monetize their own name and, and image and that the NCAA and its conferences can't punish them for it. It also said they can hire agents to facilitate this process, which is something that has always made, made the NCAA skittish. The involvement of agents sort of gives a sheen of professionality, of course. So you can see pretty clearly here, uh, the law is taking aim at a very specific NCAA rule and they are in conflict and it's already begun to, to boil over the tension between the NCAA bylaws and this and this uh, state law. I mean, I'm sure the NCAA is pretty upset about this development. I mean, this would be a sweeping change. Yeah. Um, so the NCAA basically, I mean, they're bylaws. They're not the same as, you know, as federal and state statutes. Right. But um, they are a very powerful, powerful organization. And they enforce these bylaws by stripping away players' eligibility and saying you can't play this season. You have to sit out however long. Um, or, you know, big fines to the to the institutions themselves. Um, California has said that um, with its law on the books, it does not believe that the NCAA can punish players for complying with a state law. Now, that's kind of an open question at this point. The law doesn't go into effect until 2023. So that's important to note here. It's not like this this all starts tomorrow. Um, but after you sign the bill, it... Um, Talking about the sort of alluding to the broader picture that we were talking about here about the you know the, the bigger conversation around athlete compensation, Newsom made pretty clear that he was sort of leveraging California's considerable heft in the marketplace to press the NCAA into just deciding to get rid of this of its own bylaw. Full stop. This is a quote he gave to the New York Times, speaking about California. This is one of the biggest media markets on planet Earth. 
media cannot afford not to have California being participatory in the tournaments. They know that. We know that. It's a threat. I don't necessarily take it to heart. So he's saying he doesn't actually believe that they will sort of just cut California out yeah. of college athletics, which is basically what they what their bylaws would force them to do. So it's a very interesting uh, dynamic that's well, been all, set up. It all feels like both sides are threatening each other. That you know we're saying that, that definitely it feel. I mean. Pushing the boundary to 2023 and leaving this, you know, it feels sort of like we want you to do something and this is how we want you to do it. And, you know, we can figure that we can figure stuff out later, but we're being serious about it and we're pushing you to actually take action instead of just saying, you know, studying it. Definitely. Um, But yeah, like, as you said, doesn't take effect until 2023. That accounts for both time to do it and then also like these sort of recruiting efforts happen sort of at an earlier or longer and longer timelines. Um, but like you say, that leaves plenty of time for challenges to mount or for something, you know, you know, more cooperative to emerge. Interestingly enough, the NCAA had formed like a working group um, as the bill was working its way through the through the California legislature that basically sort of tried to throw them a few crumbs and say, hey, we're going to look at this. We're mm-hmm. going to develop some recommendations here. They had asked Newsom not to sign the bill until they released their their um, recommendations. He said, well, no, I mean this is a bureaucratic thing and you guys kind of kick the can down the road on this stuff sometimes. We have political will right now. We're going to pass it and sign it. Um, but those recommendations are due out at the end of October. Um, and uh, there is a provision in the bill that says the legislature can and is willing to work with the NCAA if they can come up with something that sort of unifies this, not just for California, but for the entire organization. Um, uh, also, uh, important to note, just in terms of California being a bellwether in that regard, um, South Car- there's a South Carolina state lawmaker who says um, they will be introducing uh, a bill to this effect. There's a New York state uh, lawmaker, I think, is planning one as well. Um, regarding any lawsuits, uh, the NCAA only issued a very short statement on Monday after Newsom signed the bill saying it would consider the next steps in California. So um, stakes are very high, uh, and we'll just have to see what happens. Massachusetts federal judge ruled this week that Harvard University didn't discriminate against Asian American applicants by considering race as part of its admissions process. The ruling came after a closely watched trial and potentially sets the stage for the next big Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action. Here to discuss the case is Chris Villani, Law360's chief Boston correspondent. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm really excited to talk about this ruling, and I know how busy you are up there in Boston. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of that, let's go back a beat and talk about the basics of the lawsuit itself. Sure. So the suit was filed in 2014 by the group Students for Fair Admissions. And the president of SFFA is a guy named Ed Blum, who has an anti-affirmative action legal strategist who successfully guided about a half a dozen cases to the Supreme Court, all turning on this issue. And he has other cases pending. Actually, one unrelated in North Carolina was uh, dismissed the or he lost at the same day as the, uh, the Harvard trial. Uh, verdict came down uh, on Tuesday afternoon. So this is somebody who's very familiar with this, and he's been very successful at getting cases through. And the allegation that was made is that Harvard, through its race-conscious admissions policy, is biasing uh, or is biased against Asian American applicants. 
So Harvard's admissions policy, which was really laid bare throughout this entire trial, involves certain criteria that are uh, very objective. What grades you get, what standardized test scores you get, uh, what extracurriculars a particular applicant has, has participated in, and then many other things that are subjective. You think things like letters of recommendation, just personality. Uh, those went into what's called the personal rating, how they might view a particular applicant and what he or she might bring to the Harvard community. And that was very subjective on the part of whatever admissions official was going through with this particular applicant and looking in, deciding whether this person would be admitted or not. And according to the lawsuit, through some implicit bias, uh, maybe uh, ingrained stereotypes, Asian American applicants were being unfairly penalized. They were labeled as being quiet or reserved or shy or uh, they all want to be doctors. These sort of sweeping generalizations that have uh, a tinge of racism or bias behind them, according to the suit. And this was the vehicle through which, and still is, uh, that Ed Blum and SFFA wanted to bring this case with an eye towards ultimately getting it into the appellate courts and maybe to the Supreme Court, being the next big affirmative action case. Well, Chris, I'm glad you brought up the Supreme Court, because when we get into this, these questions of the use of race in the admissions process, the, the, the question of affirmative action, it's a thing we've seen the Supreme Court take a number of times. Can you sort of give us a primer on, on you know, the, the big picture of what the court has said about the use of this kind of information when, when uh, picking college applicants? Sure. So there's been several kind of landmark affirmative action decisions. They're all fairly recent, I guess, in the context of the history of the Supreme Court. We're only going back maybe a, a couple of decades for uh, the ones that we're still looking at now. There's a 2003 holding in Grutter v. Bollinger that said uh, that affirmative action was okay, but also uh, there was sort of an undercurrent there that it wouldn't be needed forever. The, the high court has said that it feels affirmative action will eventually uh, for want of a better phrase, die a natural death. It'll it'll go away. And they estimated at the time it would take about 25 years. So we're not quite there, but uh, inching our way towards 25 years from that decision. More recently, Fisher of the University of Texas, there were two different cases. Uh, that was uh, an Ed Blum production as well. That went up to the high court 2013 and then again in 2016. And essentially what the Supreme Court has said is that it's okay to use race in the admissions process, but it can only be a plus factor. You can't count anybody's race against them. Uh, and you have to use it in sort of a narrowly tailored way to uh, differentiate between maybe very similar applicants otherwise and also achieve diversity and the benefits that come from a diverse campus, which the Supreme Court has said is, is okay. Harvard's argument throughout the course of this trial was, Yes, we use race. Nobody was, was ever denying that that could be part of the uh, admissions process at Harvard. It's race conscious. They admit that. It was not in dispute. But they're saying we're using it this way. We're using it in this narrowly tailored fashion only as a plus factor because we believe that our students will benefit more. The ones who do get in and decide to go to Harvard will benefit from being part of a diverse campus and uh, having all sorts of different uh, backgrounds and, and thought and, and, and that type of a climate and that type of a culture. Yeah, Chris, you've brought us back around to the trial itself, which you covered for us for Law 360. Tell us some of the key high points there. I mean, I know we learned a lot about how Harvard admissions actually work, um, and that's pretty interesting. But what other things did you glean while you were covering it? Sure. Yeah, there was a lot of pulling back of the curtain of the admissions process, which admittedly is not something that uh, I guess unless you have kids. I don't. I haven't thought about it since I myself applied for college. 
But looking at how Harvard selects applicants, whittles down uh, the thousands of applicants they get and, and the things that, that uh, sort of go into it, some of them weren't very surprising. For example, if you're a Division One caliber athlete, even at Harvard, uh, where it's academics first, right, you're going to get in. Uh, if the coach yeah. wants you to play basketball or uh, row on the crew team or whatever, uh, athletes are accepted at something like an 86% uh, rate. Mm-hmm. It, it was crazy. So, Chris, that makes that so much better. sense with uh, you covered Varsity Blues scandal for us, too. <laughs> and that all ties right together. Of course, that's why they were faking crew photos. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. You know, if you play water polo or just can Photoshop and make it look like you played water polo, <laughs> your chances of getting in are very, very good. Uh, legacies, Dean's List, they, they yeah. call them ALDCs, Athletes, Legacies, Dean's List. Uh, and I'm actually blanking what the C is, but it was something um, uh, relating to Harvard faculty. Yeah. Um, so those types of people, they get in a lot. Nobody was really shocked to learn that. But there are also some uh, interesting nuggets in the whole um you know, the evaluating the, the process here for admissions. For example, Harvard couldn't just, people say, well, why don't you just take the people with the best grades? Harvard gets more perfect SAT scores and perfect GPAs than they have seats available in the freshman <laughs> class. So they couldn't even do that. That's uh, which also made me feel bad about my own high school. Yeah. Oh, all of us. We're all feeling there very. That many people. Yeah, we're all yeah. feeling very demoralized right now. That was, yeah, that was kind of a stomach punch there. Um, but a lot of the, the trial, for as high-profile as this is and an interesting, very multi-layered issue, a lot of the trial was mind-numbingly boring because it dealt with st- statistics. And each side accused the other of kind of cooking the numbers to get the result that that side wanted to see. And yeah. Bill Lee from Wilmer Hale, who was the lead attorney for Harvard, said that, quoted a famous line and said, if you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. (laughs) So under one regression model, Asian American applicants were clearly penalized. There's a statistically significant difference. But then if you add this group in and subtract this and do that, it disappears. And if you do this and spit in a, you know, put in another set of inputs, a different uh, part of uh, the data comes out. So if you go through Judge Burroughs' ruling, a lot of it is assessing the different uh, statistical regression model she was given and trying to figure out which one she liked the best, essentially, and, and which one she thought was uh, the best model for Harvard to use in its own admissions uh, process. So that was that was a big part of it. Again, not the most interesting um, uh, or the most scintillating testimony to have people up there for hours on end talking <laughs> about regression models. But that's sort of what this turned on, because there were no, there wasn't a single uh, rejected Asian American applicants who testified. There were no plaintiffs, and Bill Lee said this is the first time in his 30 years or whatever of, of litigating cases that there was no plaintiff who actually got up there to say uh, I was rejected yeah. unfairly, and and this is why. The judge said they didn't need to do that. SFFA felt they didn't need to. They thought the statistics were enough. And that ended up not being the case, at least not in the opinion of Judge Burroughs. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you brought us back to to the opinion um, that we got this week. Uh, What sort of in a nutshell did the did the judge say? I mean, we know that that the judge ultimately sided with Harvard. But, you know, what was the what was the big picture that that the judge said about these accusations? 
Sure. I mean, in 130 pages, as as you all well know, you can usually find one paragraph that essentially sums it up. And when these decisions drop, you frantically search for said one <laughs> paragraph. So you, you don't have to read every word of the other 129 pages. And, and she said the admissions process may be imperfect, but the statistical disparities between applicants from the different racial groups, and that's what the case rests on, uh, were not the result of any racial animus or conscious prejudice. And Judge Burroughs found that the admissions program is narrowly tailored, meant to achieve a diverse class, and there are benefits that stem from having diversity. So diversity is a good thing, and therefore Harvard is well within its rights to, as long as they stay within the parameters of what the Supreme Court has laid out, and they are, uh, use race as a plus factor to make sure they have a as diverse a class as possible. So they don't necessarily, you can't have a quota system. You can't say we need X percentage of Asian American, X percentage of African American, X percentage of Hispanic, but you can achieve diversity and you can use race uh, in order to to, uh, get the benefits of that diverse class. And and she said that Harvard is doing that. And she also said, uh, and this really cut against SFFA, that they just didn't show uh, an example of anybody who had been harmed, anybody who uh, had been rejected unfairly from Harvard based upon discrimination. And there's so many factors that go into the admissions process. It can be challenging to show uh, that this person didn't get in and it was because of their race. So that was sort of the uphill climb that SFFA had really throughout this. And at the end of the day, it, it was not a winning argument. Um, I would imagine the plaintiff side's none too happy here. And this is such a high profile case that uh, this group has been at the Supreme Court before. Is that where we're headed back to now? What what do we anticipate? Well, oddly enough, we were heading back to the appellate courts, even if SFFA won. And no, not because obviously then Harvard would appeal. SFFA was going to appeal no matter what, because in the pleadings, and they actually didn't do this in the Fisher uh, case when it initially went through federal court in Texas, in the initial pleadings, they asked Judge Burroughs to revisit the broader question of race in admissions. And so, in other words, look beyond just the facts uh, turning on Harvard University and tackle the big question that the Supreme Court tackled in Grutter uh, 20 or however many years ago, 16 years ago in 2003. So she declined to do that. So no matter what, SFFA was then going to appeal that and the fact that she didn't take up that question. So we're heading for an appeal no matter what. And really, yes, it's about Harvard, this case, but for SFFA and anti-affirmative action uh, folks like Ed Blum, who are taking aim at this, it's about the broader question. And that's, I think, what the, the appeal is going to be about. I don't know if it's going to be as much about the, uh, the specifics of the Harvard case, but taking up that broader question that was included in the original pleadings back in 2014 that was not tackled in the case at the district court level. So I, I talked to a bunch of folks last fall after the trial wrapped. Um, some think that this is headed back to the Supreme Court because it seems like that's where Ed Blum takes cases. Uh, others have said they just took this up in, in Fisher. Why in the world would they take it up again? It was mm-hmm. just a couple of years ago. Right. Um, it's also hard to say, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, or I should say last year, um, there was so much of uh, uh, just many hot button issues around the Supreme Court, the politicizing of the of the Supreme Court. So 
Justice Chief Justice Roberts might have been a little more skittish about taking a, a, a hot button case like an affirmative action type case when he is very cautious about the idea of the Supreme Court being any sort of a politicized body. Maybe the climate will be different, I don't know, two, three years from now, whenever uh, the Supreme Court's actually looking at taking this case. Maybe the makeup of the court will be different. So predicting where a case is going to go is always difficult because it takes so many years. But no matter what, this case was engineered from the beginning, win or lose at the district court level, to be appealed with the broader goal of eliminating affirmative action in admissions. Well, now we'll all wait around and see if the Supreme Court takes that bait and takes this case up. Um, Thanks for explaining everything, Chris. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Happy to anytime. I'd like to end our show with something offbeat and more sports, I hear. You you hear correctly. Uh, the baseball playoffs are starting up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very exciting. And there's uh, we have a little bit of a legal entanglement for uh, Hall of, uh, Houston Astros Hall of Fame first baseman Jeff Bagwell. Uh, Bill, you're a student of baseball. You got any like just brief Jeff Bagwell takes before we get into the story here? I mean, he had a fun stance. Yeah, everybody imitated the stance. Yeah, I watched sure. him a lot because the Astros were in, were in the same division as the Cubs for, for that stretch. Oh, that's there. right. I forgot they so, were in the NL. I saw him a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think he had like a 949 OPS or something. Good. Yeah, he was good at baseball. Yeah, good career. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, he, he has gotten himself involved in a dispute with uh, some West Houston – landscapers who claim that Bagwell stiffed them on part of a $1.5 million bill he racked up uh, during his quest to turn uh, the half-acre lot on which his home sits into a, quote, badass yard. <laughs> he, is oh, in, he is in a dispute over landscaping fees. Do you think that, do you know, you th- do you think that off-screen some, uh, there was a similar dispute like this in Field of Dreams? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, wait do you hear about that. Well, because yeah. I feel like we've got a real like uh, trend going here on the show of celebrities, particularly athletes, who rack up bills that seem truly outrageous yeah yeah um so this was the the, the actual uh, amount in dispute is a little bit lower 1.5 million was just like the the total project of this lawn work uh done by this company called fng landscape design they were working on jeff bagwell's house in texas um and uh yeah it was about 1.5 million dollar sort of lawn overhaul um, the company claims that he has not paid them $166,000 invoice. Bagwell, on the other side, claims that they actually overcharged him, and they owe him $300,000. Wow. So, um, but the thing that kind of keeps popping up, the um, the jury, uh, the uh, trial started in Texas on, uh, uh, started this week, and uh, on Tuesday, uh, the attorney, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, this is like, so stupid, um, the <laughs> They're, they're quoting uh, Bagwell in these opening statements. Sure. So um, <laughs> the attorney was a guy named David Fetner, and he is um, representing the company. And this is what he told the jury in the opening. He wanted to make it badass. And as he worked to make this property badass, he relied on F&G to help him in that endeavor. Um, so <laughs> here's the thing. They keep... Sort of painting this picture of like them coming to Bagwell and him saying, "That looks badass." 
Uh, and the Bagwells, on the other hand, say, like, these suspicious invoices started popping up for this enormous lawn project, and no one really knows. And, and they're like, oh, we don't know where this is coming from. We're getting, we're getting you know, bilked here. Um, I get the general contours of what we're talking about here, but every time we talk about a badass lawn, I'm imagining, like, what, what does he have? Is it, like, pyrotechnics in his backyard? Well, What's yeah. going on? Well, here? part of the reason... A motocross it, track? Yeah, it, there you go. Nothing, yeah. can, nothing can be ruled out. That, that They didn't go into, like, exactly the details of what was planned, but the reason it got so expensive is that during the course of the project, this happened over, like, several years, Bagwell bought the plot, like, the half-acre plot of land next to his house, uh-huh. demolished the house that was sitting on it to turn it into his, like, lawn empire. I feel like Bagwell's got too much time on his hands. We gotta get this guy. I mean, what if by badass what he really meant was, like, a very serene koi pond and, Maybe. like, a zen garden? I don't know if that costs you that much money, though. I couldn't say. Um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, Bagwell's um, lawyer... Um, Said a landscaping expert will testify later. Love it. Uh, that the uh, the one point five million dollar bill was beyond the scope of what could reasonably be charged for the work that was done. Can't wait to see what a landscape expert like what what's entailed in that. I love the idea of uh, you know we always see like economists and yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, engineers yeah. and yeah. I love the idea of one of those shops that having like a landscape expert on staff and he's just he never gets the call definitely and then. <laughs> I just really like that we're a group of people living in the New York City area. Where oh, we're yeah. Like, I mean, it's a pipe uh, dream. $1.5 million lawn? What's even <laughs> happening? No. What is that? Um, the uh, I'll, I'll just leave you with this because this is profoundly strange. Uh, the one of the, the co-owner of the landscaping company is a guy named Kevin Gruber. Uh, and he and he took the um, he, he took the stand uh, and, and and gave a quote. This is this is a quote. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. What? You're going <laughs> to. Well, I saw you. Yeah, what? The guy has the same last name as the bad guy from Die Hard, yeah, and, you're not, and you're not going to remark on it or even pause to let me remark on it? There you go. You've, you, you've remarked. I mean, go ahead. <laughs> anyway, he's responding to this general allegation that, like, the Bagwells were kind of left in the, in the dark about this. Like they said, they, these invoices just kept popping up. This is what, this is what Kevin, not Hans Gruber, said uh, on, the, uh, on the stand. We talked about his house on a daily basis. He'd say... This is badass. <laughs> so I felt we not only solved the problems with his yard, but we did fulfill his dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Amazing. Great. Uh, I don't know what else there is to say about that. I mean, I feel like it's been quite a badass show, guys. Tortious interference with badassery. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that's what's going on with Jeff Bagwell. Um, good luck to all the, to all the teams uh, in the playoffs, I guess. <laughs> Except for ours. Yeah, except for ours. All right. It seems like we've had enough of this one today, guys. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Later. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Chris Milani, and contributing reporters, Zach Zager, Kelsey Griffiths, and Michelle Cassidy. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Our show's available anywhere you follow podcasts. Please download us and leave us a five-star review and a written review. That helps other people find Pro Se. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.